we were going to call this series shiny object syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them but we chose instead to call it this does not compute a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies with the technologies that you read about in the papers and we get real experts to come in and talk about it I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Welcome to the This Does Not Compute podcast. I'm Caitlin Chin. I'm a fellow at CSIS, and I'll be your guest host for today, taking over for James Lewis. Today, I'm joined by Evan Greer, who is the director of Fight for the Future, a nonprofit digital advocacy organization. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Today, we are here to talk about TikTok. And a week ago, everybody in the United States was talking about the balloon. Now it's TikTok. This is not a new topic. Back in 2020, Donald Trump issued an executive order that would have essentially blocked TikTok from operating in the United States. Since then, the Biden administration has been negotiating an agreement with TikTok that, if finalized, could potentially allow the app to operate under ByteDance in the United States. These negotiations have not been finalized, and they've gone on for a couple of years now. But in the past couple of months, something changed. All of a sudden, we have Congress banning TikTok and government devices in the NDAA. Several states and a few public universities have also blocked TikTok either on state government-owned devices or on campus Wi-Fi, and even Canada and the European Union have also blocked TikTok on government devices. So Evan, I would love to just hear your take on recent developments. Why are so many government officials interested in banning TikTok, and why have these calls intensified in recent months? Yeah, for sure. So unfortunately, I would say that this is mostly a symptom of a broader problem, which is tech policy that's made for TV rather than made to actually help people. And so what we've seen with this kind of wave of proposals to ban TikTok, whether it's from government devices or on college campuses or most recently legislation that would enable the banning of TikTok entirely in the United States on private people's devices. All of it sort of stems from a desire for lawmakers to appear tough on China more than from genuine concerns or concern for actually doing something about the genuine problems with TikTok's data collection and other business practices. And I think it's important that we draw that distinction because TikTok is totally a problem. And they do engage in incredibly harmful and predatory business practices. But unfortunately, those business practices are common across the tech industry. And so that's why my organization, Fight for the Future, have been calling, instead of banning TikTok, for lawmakers to pass comprehensive data privacy legislation and other measures that would crack down on the harmful and abusive business practices that TikTok certainly engages in, but that companies like Instagram and YouTube engage in as well. I definitely want to return to your calls about more comprehensive privacy measures, but first I want to go back to some of the concerns that politicians have raised. You've mentioned the abusive data practices that not only TikTok, but other mobile apps engaged in. So what specifically are the reasons for banning TikTok and do they have any validity? 
Yeah. So again, a lot of all of this is sort of there are genuine and valid underlying concerns that are sort of wrapped in a unpleasant crust of xenophobia and U.S. exceptionalism. <laughs> but diving into like what are folks actually saying and what are the genuine concerns? TikTok engages in a business model that is again, very similar to what Instagram and others do. It's built on surveillance and it effectively is built on collecting as much data and information about people and how they use the app as possible and then using that information to recommend content. And some might argue that TikTok has sort of perfected that or at least certainly is doing it more effectively than some other companies, which is why the app has gained so much popularity. But more or less, it engages in roughly the same business model as similar social media giants. Those business practices are distressing. That type of data collection enables manipulation. We know that content recommendation systems that are driven by surveillance have a tendency to artificially amplify some of the worst content online just because it's engaging and generates ad revenue. And we know that content recommendation systems driven by surveillance can be incredibly addictive and have other harmful side effects to them. And, and this is where the concern has been raised by government officials, whenever private companies collect and amass huge amounts of data, there's always the risk that governments could try to abuse that data. And there's been sort of a hyper focus on China's government in this case, and the relationship that they have to TikTok. But the reality is this is a concern as old as the internet. Governments around the world have basically tried since companies started collecting so much data to collect that data. We've seen government data requests from governments, not just the Chinese government, but the Saudi government, the US government, the UK government, the Turkish government. Governments around the world have always tried to conduct surveillance by demanding or bullying platforms into handing over user data. And that's not a concern that's unique to TikTok, but I think the insinuation that's being made is that since the Chinese government has a more direct relationship with ByteDance, that they could do that through sort of extra legal means or through means that would be legal in China, but not here. And I think that is a valid concern, but we should be just as concerned about the fact that any number of other governments could access the same type of data through something like a subpoena, or other legal means, the problem here is really about companies collecting so much data on us in the first place. And so if we want to protect ourselves from both commercial surveillance and government surveillance that's built on top of it, we can't do that by just banning one app. We do that by putting laws in place to prevent that commercial surveillance in the first place. And to be blunt, it's a national embarrassment that we have no basic data privacy law here in the United States. And that's what's putting people at risk. And that's what also makes it so clear that banning TikTok wouldn't solve this problem. Even if TikTok were to be wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, the Chinese government could likely access a lot of the same data simply by purchasing it on the open market from data brokers, because there's so few laws in place to prevent that type of abuse in the United States right now today. It is absolutely wild to think that data privacy laws in the United States, including both commercial data protection laws and laws that regulate government access to this data, have not been updated in years, essentially, since the internet became popular. Like you mentioned, this has enabled many, many mobile apps, not just TikTok, to collect an enormous amount of very sensitive personal information. What about the second, what about the second major concern that politicians have raised, besides 
data. So assuming that the Chinese government or other governments can potentially collect personal information through data brokers or hacking or other means. Some politicians have expressed the concern that since ByteDance is based in China, the Chinese government could actually potentially control TikTok's algorithm to target disinformation or harmful information to users. Have we seen any examples of this happening? And does corporate ownership or the country of origin of a, of a company potentially subject the, an app to greater risks? Yeah, for sure. And this is another example of, I think, something that's a valid concern that won't be solved by engaging in an authoritarian practice like banning an app from an entire country. So we absolutely should be concerned about governments, including the Chinese government, putting pressure on companies to change how they moderate content, to change what content they're recommending, to amplify content favorable to that government, or to suppress content that that government doesn't like, right? And that's not a new problem. We've certainly seen, again, not just the Chinese government, but many governments, including the US government, it's worth saying, engaging in that type of pressure, right? And so that is something valid that we should be concerned about. And that's why human rights experts have for years called for more transparency from platforms about these types of requests, how they deal with them, when they receive them, and all of that. So more transparency is the solution there. And it's certainly right that because of the lack of transparency we have right now, we wouldn't know if TikTok as a company was promoting certain types of content or suppressing other types of content, either just for their own commercial purposes or because a government had asked them to do so. So we absolutely need more transparency to prevent that type of abuse. But again, that type of abuse could be happening with other companies. We know, for example, that Apple has bent over backwards in the past to appease the Chinese government because of their business relationships there. And that's gone as far as removing apps from the app store at the request of that government and other measures because they have a significant financial stake in being able to continue making their phones in China. And it's also worth noting that while governments around the world engage in this practice, we shouldn't engage in false equivalents. The Chinese government is perhaps uniquely authoritarian in terms of its attempts to control and censor the internet and certainly has the most sophisticated domestic censorship program in the world, as far as I know. And so it's not to say, oh, well, you know, every government does this and it's no big deal, but rather just to recognize that it's a bigger problem. It's not just about TikTok or China, but it's something that we solve through having more accountability and transparency so that we have a window into all of the ways that governments are trying to influence platforms moderation and recommendation strategies so that we can push back on those things and so that people can recognize disinformation when they see it and so that we can differentiate between organic content and content that's perhaps being pushed by a specific company or government for their own nefarious purposes. I'm really glad you brought that point up because some of the arguments I hear a lot are, you know, well, the Chinese government engages in surveillance. China has the Great Firewall. China has censored and banned so many U.S. companies. So why shouldn't the United States do the same thing with TikTok? I've never really understood the logic of that. I mean, just because one country engages in authoritarian practices like censorship, it doesn't mean all countries should. <laughs> I would love to talk about one of the concerns that your petition brought up, which is free speech and free expression. Could you discuss why TikTok could potentially invoke 
First Amendment concerns. Yeah, for sure. And so as always, there's sort of two separate issues here, and it's worth separating them. So one is the kind of philosophical or just broader kind of logical impact on people's free expression rights broadly. And then the other is the legal circumstances and whether it implicates the First Amendment. And that's important because there's been a lot of debate recently about things like content moderation on platforms. And there's sort of a sense of, well, removing someone's post from Twitter certainly doesn't violate their First Amendment rights. In fact, Twitter has a First Amendment right to decide what content they want to host on their platform or not. But platforms moderation decisions clearly do impact people's free expression, whether or not they legally implicate the First Amendment. So just as a quick aside there. So let's break it into those two buckets. So one is just to first, let's be honest about how popular this platform is and who's using it and what they're using it for, right? It's very important to be clear that TikTok is a platform that's being used by a lot of people. And it's disproportionately used by young people, people of color, LGBTQ folks. And we know that a lot of organizing is happening on the platform. So obviously it's very popular and famous for dance videos and sea shanties and whatever. But there's also a lot of young people who are using TikTok to organize around gun violence and climate change and issues that matter to them. A lot of artists and creators have built large followings on the platform and it's integral to their careers. And so there's a large number of people who are very vested in using this platform for better or for worse, for whom suddenly banning it out of the blue would have an enormous impact on their free expression and their ability to be heard, right? So that's one kind of side of it. Now, then the question becomes, does that implicate the First Amendment? And the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, obviously one of the leading civil liberties and constitutional rights organizations in the country, um, have come out strongly against banning TikTok and have argued that doing so would be unconstitutional. They likened it to banning a newspaper or a magazine or a TV channel in the sense that if United States citizens want to express themselves on TikTok, they should have a right to do so. And the government cannot pass laws banning them from expressing themselves on the platform of their choice. So the ACLU believes that there is a constitutional argument against banning TikTok. They are more lawyers than I am, so I would leave that to them to argue. But I think that there are clearly both constitutional concerns and broader free expression concerns. And then the last thing I would just say is when you kind of zoom out a little bit, there are very few countries in the world that engage in authoritarian practices as extreme as banning an entire app from private individuals' devices across the entire country. It's a short list. And the countries on that list are China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey. You know, it is kind of astounding that governments like the United States government, the Canadian government, European governments want to add themselves to that list. Because again, it's it's a pretty extreme position for a government to take. And I, you know, I do find it deeply ironic that some of these US politicians who are so eager to show how tough on China they are, are proposing a policy that looks a lot like one that the Chinese government would engage in. 
That's a really great point to bring up. TikTok is has become huge. It's a platform that I think an estimated 100 million Americans use as a form of, like you mentioned, not just a platform to share music and dance videos, but also an organizing platform, a form of expression and communication. It's an interesting dynamic as well, because even as the Biden administration, and even as members of Congress have weighed, you know, what do we do with TikTok? How do we deal with TikTok? They're also using TikTok to reach out to younger voters. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, President Biden invited TikTok influencers to the White House to talk about COVID-19 vaccines and attempt to reach out to younger Americans that way. So it's just, it's, it's interesting, TikTok being used both as a form of communication, but also a source of suspicion. In your view, if hypothetically TikTok were to be banned, and say somehow it does pass legal challenges based on free expression grounds. And what what would happen? Who would be immediately affected? And would we see any immediate either benefits or consequences? So the first thing that would happen is Mark Zuckerberg would go to the bank and deposit all of the extra money that Meta would gain from having one of their largest and most significant competitors suddenly wiped off the face of the map in the US. Um, And it is really important that we say that very clearly, that the biggest winner in TikTok being banned is big tech giants that lawmakers are complaining about all the time. So there's something a little bit ironic and hilarious about that as well. And in fact, we know that some of those large US-based tech companies were caught, and there was some reporting on this a number of months ago, they've actually been funding some of this kind of anti-TikTok PR and sentiment exactly for that purpose, that there's sort of this smoke and mirrors of like, oh, stop looking at us, like, look at TikTok over there, they're like really bad, right? And so like, there is some of this that is about avoiding accountability and regulation for the tech industry writ large by offering up TikTok as a kind of sacrificial lamb. So that's one thing. Beyond that, I think we would just continue to see more of the same in terms of concentration in the tech industry, people not having meaningful choices, right? Okay, you can leave Instagram and go where? To back to Facebook, to YouTube, to another platform owned by another giant company with more or less the same business practices, right? And so we see less space for newcomers, less space for alternatives like Mastodon to potentially grow because we just would have even more concentration within an already hyper-centralized and concentrated space. But I also, you know, I'm not really sure that we're going to get there. I, I feel very confident in the First Amendment arguments against banning TikTok. And I feel fairly confident that if this starts to become more real and we do see like significant bipartisan movement on this, I think we'll see an uprising, frankly, from TikTok users. Like you said, there are 100 million people in the United States use this app, including a lot of people who are like, spend a lot of time there and for whom it is a significant source of community or audience or where they make a living. And I think that we could certainly see something like we saw with the uprisings against Sopa Pippa or the massive online protests against the repeal of net neutrality where it's something that affects a lot of people who don't always engage in politics. And I think you could really see a big cross-partisan backlash to something that's just so clearly 
a silly and patronizing and kind of authoritarian idea. I think it just sort of, it, it doesn't pass, pass the sniff test and any serious person looking at it for more than a few seconds can recognize why banning TikTok doesn't solve any of the problems that lawmakers are talking about. And in fact, a lot of the lawmakers that are the loudest about this are some of the same ones that have been getting in the way of us passing things like privacy and antitrust legislation that would actually lead to a world where people can leave TikTok if they are concerned about the Chinese government's influence over it and have real alternatives of someplace else to go other than just back to a giant US-based big tech company that engages in many of the same predatory business practices. Right. I can imagine. I mean, especially since social media is a, an industry that's very susceptible to network effects, for example, if you are a person with a million followers on TikTok or a thousand followers on TikTok, or if you use TikTok as a form of even if you're an influencer and if you have brand sponsorships or if you just enjoy the, you know, the community that you've that you've gained on TikTok. And I can imagine that it would be really hard just to switch to another platform where you might not have the same following, where you might not have friends on the platform. I remember back in December when Elon Musk took over Twitter and started making a lot of really drastic changes. Many of us in the policy and the advocacy community were not sure what to do because yes, there are some growing alternatives like Mastodon, but it, it is it is it is very hard to switch or leave a social media platform altogether, at least in the current market. You mentioned that you don't think that a TikTok ban is likely to pass or likely to survive a potential legal challenge. What do you think the motivations are behind the many U.S. government officials who have gone on record calling for a TikTok ban? And this, this historically has been a more Republican movement. President Trump issued an executive order back in 2020 calling for a TikTok ban. Republicans tend to be a little bit more hawkish when it comes to China. But even in recent months, we've seen a few prominent Democrats also calling for a TikTok ban. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado called for Apple and Google to ban TikTok from app stores. Angus King, who is an independent from Maine, joined Rubio in sponsoring in a TikTok bill. So first of all, do you think that this TikTok ban is gaining bipartisan momentum? And if so, will that make it harder for the Biden administration to reach some sort of safety agreement or to find an alternative outcome to banning TikTok? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do think that this general rhetoric is gaining a lot of momentum. And I think there's, again, a lot of different forces at play and reasons for that. So there's certainly the U.S.-based tech industry that's kind of intentionally pouring gasoline on this fire because it's very convenient for them that suddenly everyone is just focused on this one app rather than focused on you know, the kind of broader issues with the entire industry and regulation and legislation that would address them. But then there's also, as you mentioned, just kind of a general posturing among lawmakers who are just looking for opportunities to kind of appear both tough on China and tough on tech. Well, they've been kind of served up on a silver platter, this very perfect showboaty opportunity to appear tough on both at the same time without really having to do anything. And lawmakers always love those types of opportunities. So, you know, I think, I don't think that this is going away anytime soon. But like with so much of the, again, kind of tech policy made for TV that we've seen, it's hard to know how much of it is actually about 
doing anything, right? Like Republicans have also been complaining about anti-conservative bias on the part of the major platforms for a number of years, but they seem much more interested in complaining about that and sending fundraising emails about that and going on Fox News to talk about that than they do about actually doing something that would crack down on platforms' size and power, like passing antitrust bills, right? And, you know, not painting all Republicans the same, but certainly Republican leadership is much more interested in fundraising off of the idea of big tech censoring conservatives than they are in actually doing something that would take big tech down a peg or undermine their ability to control online discourse and speech, right? So I think that's part of it for me that that makes me a little skeptical that this is actually moving is just that I think a lot of the folks that are driving this are more interested in talking about it than actually doing something about it. But that's not to say that it's not a real concern. And we've seen in the past that stuff like this, especially when there's a little bit of an air of moral panic around it. And I, I think we should be real that there is here, that there's some aspects of this that are about China and there's some aspects of this that are about just kind of the generalized and legitimate concerns that we have around social media and its impact on kids and impact on our society, but that at its core, there's also a bit of just kind of hand-wringing moral panic around what the kids these days are doing on TikTok, right? And mm -hmm. that some of that is what's animating some of this kind of rhetoric in DC. And I don't think hand-wringing about what the kids are doing these days will always be a politically opportunistic talking point for lawmakers, unfortunately, until the day that the kids these days are all sitting in those offices. And I guess we'll just have to cross our fingers and wait for that. <laughs> Speaking of showboating and talk, I know that there are reports of TikTok CEO coming to Washington, D.C. later this month in order to testify before Congress. What do you think we should be expecting? And this isn't the first time we've had big tech CEOs come before Congress to talk about their data privacy and security measures. Are you, are you hopeful that this hearing will be productive or do you think we'll see more of the same? I would expect a deeply measured and thoughtful conversation that is all about the substance of the issues we're talking about. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to be a total circus and it'll be very similar, I would imagine, to previous hearings with tech CEOs that, again, are, are much more about creating sound bites and C-SPAN clips that you can tweet from your Twitter account than they are about getting to the bottom of these issues or moving us toward thoughtful legislation and regulation that might address them. Let's talk about that thoughtful legislation and regulation. So like you mentioned earlier in the episode, Fight for the Future has called on Congress to pass real laws that would protect privacy and improve data protection across the entire ecosystem. What might that look like? Yeah. So the single most important thing with privacy legislation is that it focuses on restricting and limiting the amount of data that companies can collect about us in the first place. And the reason that that's so important is we can put protections in place for how companies can use our data. We can say that they shouldn't be able to just sell our data to other companies. We can say that they shouldn't be able to use our data in ways that discriminate or lead to harmful outcomes. But in the end, if the thing that we're worried about is governments accessing that data and using it to target people, then the only way to prevent that is to make sure that the company never gets and holds on to the data in the first place. And this is something that there's been sort of a bit of a wake-up call, I think, about 
in the United States in the wake of the, the horrific overturning of Roe v. Wade, where we suddenly recognize that in states where abortion or even providing or facilitating or fundraising for an abortion are illegal, state law enforcement agencies will be able to send subpoenas and other types of legal requests to platforms and demand data about users who they believe have violated those state laws, even if we all agree that those state laws are completely draconian and ridiculous, and even if the activities that those people engaged in are not illegal federally. The data collection from companies creates this huge surface area for state surveillance. And that's true globally too, where other governments can also request data from US companies and vice versa. And so that's why we're so focused on pushing for privacy legislation that starts with minimizing the amount of data that companies can collect in the first place and effectively says, you can't collect data about a user that you do not need in order to provide that user with the service that they have requested. And furthermore, you can't hold on to that data for any longer than you absolutely need to in order to either comply with the law or provide the user with the service that they've requested. And then furthermore, you can't use that data in this way, that way, ABC or the other thing, right? So that's the kind of broad framework for data privacy legislation that we've been pushing for is sort of broad prohibitions on the over collection and harvesting of data and broad prohibitions on harmful uses of data. And that would solve a lot of the problems that we're talking about. It's not gonna fix everything about the internet, but it would crack down on, for example, not just kind of surveillance and the ways that companies abuse our privacy, but also on some of the other harms that folks have focused on, like the viral spread of disinformation and the ways that content recommendation systems driven by data collection often artificially amplify really extreme content, content that's often false or hateful or otherwise harmful. If you take away the data that powers those systems, you can still amplify content, but what you can't do is sort of the directly micro-targeting harmful content into the minds of the people who are most susceptible to it. So you can no longer say, well, you liked this video, you might like this more extreme video, because if you ban companies from A, collecting that data in the first place, or B, using that data to power things like algorithmic recommendation systems with harmful outcomes, you can really mitigate a lot of the problems that have been talked about when we look at social media, big tech companies generally. The other area where I'd say there's a lot that lawmakers could do is around antitrust, where again, part of the problem that we have with TikTok is that it's one of the few alternatives to other large platforms. And that's why it's grown so much. And that's why people who are on there may not have a lot of great alternatives to leave, even if, even if they are concerned about the influence that the Chinese government might have over the platform. And that's why we've been pushing for strong antitrust legislation to crack down on the anti-competitive business practices that large tech companies have engaged in so that we can have more choices and more options. And so that if we decide we're concerned about a platform for whatever reason, whether it's because the government might influence it or because we just don't like the CEO or don't like how they do business, that there are other places we can go to rebuild our audience and still find the value that we all find in online spaces where we can express ourselves, connect with others, organize, and fight for the things that we believe in. That makes a lot of sense. Like you mentioned earlier in this episode, 
it is an embarrassment that the United States still does not have basic boundaries on how all tech companies are allowed to use personal information. And that does lead to huge potentials for abuse, not only from foreign governments, which is what a lot of the TikTok concerns are centered around, but like you mentioned, the ability for domestic government agencies too to potentially use this information without proper legal safeguards in ways that people do not expect. Currently, a lot of the talk is more narrowly focused on TikTok, but how can advocates use interest in TikTok to more broadly promote, for example, basic comprehensive privacy legislation or antitrust legislation? Is there a role for online advocacy? Yeah, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with our hashtag don't ban TikTok campaign. It's very much not a campaign that's about defending TikTok or being like, TikTok is the best, like leave it alone, right? Our campaign is explicitly saying, yes, TikTok is a problem. And TikTok is a problem because it engages in these specific business practices that are harmful and should be banned. So let's ban those business practices instead of banning TikTok. And I think that there actually is hopefully a moment here of kind of a a teachable moment, because I think a lot of folks on TikTok share that sentiment. Just because they're on the platform doesn't mean they think TikTok is the best. My experience of organizing YouTubers is they all hate YouTube, right? They're just sort of stuck there because it's where they've built their audience and where people come to find them. Um, And I think you'll find a lot of consensus among TikTok creators and others who use the platform that they like what they find there. That doesn't mean that they love the company and its business practices. And so my hope is that this can be a moment where by getting people to think a little bit deeper beyond just like, uh, I hate China and I hate social media and I like banning things, but to actually focus on what are the real problems here and how do we solve them? And to also be real about the, the broader political context that this is happening in and just to underline it and just say clearly that there is a significant amount of xenophobia that's driving this. And it's one thing to be critical of the Chinese government and its business practices. And it's another thing to kind of fan the flames of lawmakers who are really engaging in basic bigotry and trying to kind of stoke up sentiment that is more more directly anti the Chinese people than recognizing the practices that their government engages in. Right. And I hear a lot of policies in the United States justified based on just very, very broad mentions of China or Russia. For example, I mean, even talking about antitrust legislation, there are groups out there who have argued that antitrust legislation to prevent anti-competitive practices from big tech companies like self-preferencing would actually harm U.S. national security by strengthening Chinese companies. So yes, we have seen China very, very broadly and vaguely used as justification for many, many U.S. policies. I have a quick thing. Can I just say something quick on that? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Which is just, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And like this talking point has has gone to like such extremes. I feel like you literally see U.S. tech lobbyists say things that basically amount to, if we don't build flying facial recognition equipped murder dogs first, then the Chinese will build them, right? <laughs> like there's this idea that it doesn't matter whether tech is good or bad or harmful, we just have to build it before the Chinese do, right? And it's just such a silly and empty talking point. And again, one that's It is based in xenophobia, U.S. exceptionalism, and U.S. imperialism, and we should call it as such. Right. 
And I worry about the precedent that banning TikTok or even threatening to ban TikTok could potentially set for future companies or future apps, or just the ability to use blanket national security justifications to very, very broadly ban a form of speech or a form of expression for 100 million people. It's not a targeted measure. It's not a tailored measure. So I I do worry about what this could potentially mean for future non-U.S. companies that may wish to operate in the United States, as well as future apps that people enjoy and want to use. So Fight for the Future, this is not Fight for the Future's first advocacy campaign. You've been involved in antitrust legislation and privacy legislation for a while. I was wondering if you could just talk about some of the outcomes of your past campaigns. Have you found that lawmakers are open to discussing broad advocacy measures? And where do you think there's still room for more work to be done? Yeah, for sure. I mean, gosh, there's always always more work to be done, unfortunately. But I mean, folks probably know us best for helping build a lot of the tech and messaging behind the SOPA blackout. I'm dating myself here, but for folks who've been engaged in tech policy for a minute, they may remember when Wikipedia and Google and tens of thousands of other websites went dark to protest SOPA PIPA, which was copyright legislation that could have led to widespread internet censorship. And that was a really great example of people harnessing the power of the internet to defend that power, where in a single day, we drove more than 8 million phone calls to lawmakers in Washington, D.C., and took a piece of legislation that was seen as certainly going to pass, inevitable, and nuked it to the point that if you talk to congressional staffers about SOPA PIPA, even today, they kind of like tremble a little bit. and They're like, no, 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 we never want to go through that again. You know, we've sort of recreated a lot of those same tactics to organize some of the largest online protests in human history in opposition to the repeal of net neutrality. A lot of folks may remember that as well. And then more recently, we've been fanning out a little bit. To be frank, there's just so many different threats and opportunities around technology and the policies that govern it. And we've had some significant success. So as a couple examples, we've been focused on particularly egregious uses of harmful technology, for example, the use of facial recognition surveillance in public places. And we've had a lot of success. For example, we ran a campaign where we got Tom Morello, the guitarist of Rage Against the Machine, and a number of other prominent musicians to sign an open letter against the use of facial recognition in music venues. And that prompted more than 40 of the world's largest music festivals to commit to not using facial recognition at their events. We recreated that campaign around Amazon's palm scanning devices in concert venues and had a lot of success there as well, where we got Red Rocks, which is one of the most iconic large music venues in the country, to back away from using that technology at their venue. So we sort of apply a dual two-prong approach where we directly pressure companies to change their business practices when we see that they're harmful. And that kind of gives us time and space to fight for policy, which just always takes a lot longer, partly because we have to spend at least half of our time beating back stupid policies like banning TikTok, which takes time away from pushing for the types of thoughtful, comprehensive, meaningful policies and regulation that we know we need in the end to ensure technology is a force for good and empowerment and upliftment rather than a force for tyranny and greed and exploitation. 
That's very cool. Well, Evan, thank you so much again for joining us on This Does Not Compute. This is Evan Greer, Fight for the Future. Thanks so much again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode. Thank you.